Charlotte. He is also the president of this campus and the RTS system. Uh, Mike is a rising star in the evangelical and reformed world. Uh, in his scholarship, he is an expert and, and a brother who's really given us a lot of great stuff on the canon of Scripture, why we choose these 66 books of the Bible. He's done some fabulous work there with some brothers. And, and uh, as a result, we have, can have greater confidence in the authority of Scripture. Uh, Mike, of course, is also an ordained PCA pastor who labors at our sister congregation, Uptown Church. He is married to Melissa, and they have, how many kids do you guys have? Three. Three kids. Three kids. Mike is also, has also attended a little college in Chapel Hill, but we won't hold that against him. We are all about grace, Mike, giving people the opposite of what they deserve. <laughs> love you, man. It is an honor to have him bring the Word of God to us. Would you please welcome Dr. Michael Kruger. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Dean. Can't go anywhere these days without Chapel Hill coming up on one way or the other, so hopefully that doesn't create too much of a fork in the road here for this congregation. As we get started, I do want to say what a pleasure it is to be here. As Dean noted, we've just been friends for a long time, and I've heard so many wonderful things about Redeemer Church over the years, not only from Uptown, but also from RTS, and it's just long overdue that I get a chance to spend a little time with you. This is my first Sunday at Redeemer Church. Never been here before, so it's great to see you. A lot of familiar faces, a lot of new faces. I'm excited to share God's Word with you today. Dean mentioned a minute ago where we'll be reading from today, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I trust you turn there in your Bibles. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 11 here. Uh, And let's just read that together and hear from God's Word. If you don't mind, let's stand as we read God's Word. I'll read it aloud and you follow along in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 16, starting in verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Thank the Lord for his good word. Please be seated. Pray with me as we begin. Our Lord, we're thankful for your word this morning. We more than anything else, need to hear from you, Lord, not from me or from Dean or from anyone else, but ultimately from our Lord in heaven. So speak to us from this passage this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we begin this morning, this passage, I already know what you're thinking in your head right now. You're thinking in your mind, why in the world do we read this passage today? You're thinking to yourself, it's Sunday morning, it's Leadership Sunday, officer installation, new elders, 
new deacons. Surely this calls for one of those passages of Scripture that is so foundational for the Christian life, so meaningful, so paradigmatic that everyone's got it memorized, that can give the great motivation for these new officers to fulfill their calling. Surely a passage like that would have been picked for a day like this. But then... I ask you to turn to the very end of 1 Corinthians 16, to these obscure passages about Paul's travel plans, itinerary, final greetings, and you're wondering in your mind, as I am, what in the world do these have to do with much of anything, not to mention new officers? A fair question. You know, one thing I've learned over the years, and no doubt you've learned it too, is you've studied the Bible, and that's simply this. Often the passages that we think have very little to teach us from God's Word often hold those nuggets and treasures that we never saw the first time around. And this passage, as I trust we'll see today, is just one of those. In fact, you know what's interesting about Paul? Is that Paul does something at the end of his letters that he rarely does anywhere else in his letters. And if you've never really thought about it before, it's pretty interesting just to note it, and it's simply this. At the end of Paul's letters, Paul takes time, unusually, to talk about himself. Actually, to talk about his own ministry, to talk about his own goals, his own ambitions, his own thinking, his own passions. What makes Paul tick is usually something that comes at the end of Paul's Letters. He spends the rest of his letters often dealing with the problems in his audience. The problem, problems at Corinth were vast. Paul spent 16 chapters practically telling us about all the problems at Corinth and how the gospel affects them. But at the very end of his book, you know what Paul does? He gives us this little glimpse into his own ministry. What it's like, what Paul values, what he's passionate about. In other words, at the very end of this letter, we get a look at what makes for a healthy ministry. What things have to be there? What characteristics mark it? Now, once you realize that's what's going on in a passage like this, suddenly its relevance for a day like this changes. Because certainly at an officer installation Sunday, what makes for a healthy, vibrant ministry certainly is relevant. But it's actually more relevant than you think it is because it's not something that just applies to officers. Everyone here who's a follower of Christ, who loves Jesus, has been called by Christ to serve his church in some concrete, meaningful way that employs their gifts. All of us on one level are ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if Paul is going to tell us what makes his ministry tick, then all of us can ask the question, does that fit with my ministry? Am I a person that values and does what Paul does? And for that reason, a passage like this is, I think, critical and important for all Christians to recognize as we think about our own ministries. So let's jump into this text today. I just want to point out a few things in our short time that I think makes Paul's ministry tick, or in one sense really characterizes who Paul is and what he is like. Let me just start with the first of three of these, and it's simply this. Paul had a passion for getting the message out. Paul had a passion for getting the gospel message out. You know, in a text like this, you learn something pretty interesting about Paul. Something you may not have noticed before, but if you noticed Paul's life up until now, you would have picked this up. And that is that Paul is a pretty restless fellow. You ever notice that? 
Notice how spiritually fidgety Paul is. He's always on the move, always a go, go, go kind of guy, always wanting to take the gospel one place further and get the message out. I want you to look in the passage and see where we pick up on this theme in the very opening verses there in 1 Corinthians 16. Notice verse 5. Paul says this, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Now, to get this in this passage, you have to understand that Paul's writing from Ephesus, and he's writing to Corinth, and he's saying, I'm going to pay you a visit. But as I want to pay you a visit, I'm not going to go straight to you, Corinthians. I'm actually going to take the long way around through Macedonia. Why? Well, implicitly so I could stop at each church along the way and minister all around this route through Macedonia. And then when I finally reach you, I'm going to minister to you. But that's not even my final goal. That's just a launching pad to wherever else I might go, probably Rome, probably Spain, to the ends of the earth. Paul has a passion for getting the message out. Not content with bringing the gospel just to one person. Not content with bringing the gospel just to one town or to one city or to one region or to one country. Paul looks at the world kind of like a general pouring over a map at headquarters. And he asks the question, where can we go next? What front can there be in the gospel where we can penetrate it into the world and get the message out? Another way to say this this morning, in a very paradoxical, maybe unusual way that you've never thought of, it's simply this. Paul is a very discontent fellow. But he's not discontent in the way that you and I tend to be discontent. I look at my own life and I ask, well, what am I discontent about? Usually I'm discontent about some aspect of my life. Maybe you're discontent about some aspect of your life. Perhaps it's your job or the car you drive or the neighborhood you live in or some relational issue in your life. And we're discontent with all these things. But Paul looks out of the world and he says the gospel has not gone far enough. And he is discontent with the state of the gospel in the world. It's a godly, it's a holy discontentment. Paul has a passion for getting the message out. You know, when I think about Paul in this passage, I can't help but think of the great missionary William Carey, whom no doubt you've heard of. In fact, you've probably heard of him from his most famous quote. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. No doubt you've heard that from time to time. William Carey was actually started out as a cobbler in the 1700s in England. Before he was ever a missionary, William Carey made shoes. And God had laid a passion on his heart for the nations. And so what Carey used to do as he made shoes in his cobbler shop would lay out a map of the world on the floor beneath him. And as he made shoes, he used to ponder, where in the world might God send me to get the message further out into the world? And then one day... William Carey had the most audacious, ridiculous, crazy idea that God was calling him to do something entirely unthinkable, and that is to take the gospel to India. Now, of course, we hear that in our modern day, and we might be tempted to shrug our shoulders and think, India? It's not such a big deal. In our day and age of a small globe and high technology and fast travel, 
India is far away to be sure, but in our minds it seems a little around the corner. But not so in Carrie's day. He had insurmountable obstacles on the way to get to India. Obstacles in terms of no financial support, no denominational support. A country halfway around the globe that took a long way to get to. A country mired in the grip of a foreign religion like Hinduism with a language you could hardly understand. And William Carey said, with all those obstacles, I am going to India to get the message out. Of course, we know the story of William Carey. A great revival broke out in India. In fact, he started one of the longest-running missionary societies in the world, the Baptist Missionary Society that's been around more than 250 years now, having sent out thousands and thousands of missionaries because William Carey had the same passion Paul had to get the message out the door. You see, right here in this text is a very profound message, certainly for our officers today. Certainly for pastors, but for each one of us. And the message is simply this. Good theology ultimately is theology that we send to the world. Make no mistake about it, Paul had a passion for getting the message right, too. Paul was concerned about doctrine. Paul was concerned about the way you think. He was concerned about getting the gospel message right. But I want you to notice Paul's M.O. His life was not, I'm going to hole up in some little cottage on the Adriatic Sea and everyone can come see me and make sure I got the message right. No, Paul's message was right, but he also had a passage for get, passion for getting that message out. And I'll tell you something, it's that combination of having the right message and the passion for getting it out that will change the world. You know, many people have the right message with no passion for getting it out. And many people have a passion for getting a message out that may not be right. The trick that Paul tells us about is this combination of right doctrine and a passion to get that message out. That is the key mark of Paul's ministry. And certainly on a day like this, we're reminded that it should be a key mark of our own. But you know, when you look in a passage like this, you see more than that. That's just the first of what you might call Paul's traits. Let's look at a second one here. A second thing we notice about Paul in terms of what marks and defines his ministry is simply this. Paul depended humbly on others for support. Paul depended humbly on others for support. You know what's interesting about the Apostle Paul? is as talented as he was as educated as he was, as eloquent as he was, no doubt as gifted as this man was, Paul made it very clear that he was not a one-man show. But Paul in this very passage makes it clear that, look, if you understand ministry, you understand ministry is not something where you work alone. Ministry is not something where you're by yourself. Ministry is not something where you're just trying to get all the attention and fame on yourself. No, ministry is a group affair. And Paul says, I can't do it by myself. Do you get that? I need help. I need to depend on others. And Paul humbly does so. You know, in our world of celebrity pastors and big names, this is a rather stunning fact. You know, if you think of anybody who might have been able to pull off the solo ministry, maybe the apostle Paul could have done so. Arguably one of the most significant figures in the entire Bible and certainly church history, writing 13 letters uh, that we find in our New Testament today. If anybody could have been a solo 
serious celebrity pastor who worked by himself. Surely Paul is our guy. But what's interesting about this passage is he makes it very clear that he is needy, he is humble, and he needs the help of those around him. Let me point a few instances of this out for you in this text. Notice down again at verse 6 in our text. Easy to look over this, but you'll see it when we read it again. Notice what Paul says, perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey. So you may help me. Here's a stunning fact. Paul comes to the Corinthians and says, look, I am coming to you to help you. I'm coming to you to minister to you. Make no mistake about it. But also don't miss this critical fact. I need your help too. In fact, the Greek term here for help is really a term that's often associated with just hospitality. No doubt Paul would have needed a place to stay. He would have needed food to eat. He would have needed encouragement. He would have needed fellowship. All the things you might think a missionary would need, Paul needed and said, Corinthians, if you understand the way ministry works, I am not a one-man show. I am coming because I will give you something, but I also need help from you. You know, William Carey, who we just talked about a moment ago, had a great phrase that captured this in ministry. He called hospitality in ministry holding the rope. Holding the rope. The rope. The reason he used that language is because Carrie actually likened ministry to mining for gold. And in that day and age, it was not unusual to have a mine that was just a hole in the ground. They would lower you into that hole on a rope and you'd look for gold and jewels. It was a rather scary affair. Frightening, dangerous, dark down there. If you were to fall, you were going to be in big trouble. That kind of mining is what William Carey said ministry is like. He says, you look, I don't mind going down the hole. I don't mind doing the ministry. I don't mind looking for gold, so to speak. But Carrie said, if I'm going to do that, someone has to hold the rope. If you're going to do ministry today, this is not a one-man show. You need to humbly depend on others who can hold the rope for you. If you're here today and you've got the officer installation going on in your church, the obvious application of this today is, are you, as a congregant, holding the rope for your pastors, elders, and deacons even now, and your missionaries? And elders, pastors, and deacons, are you putting yourself to the congregation humbly, asking for someone to help you in that way? You know what's interesting about Paul, though? He didn't just need hospitality. You know what else he needed? Co-laborers. Do you notice who he recruits in the passage? Another little detail you might have read right over, but look down in the passage. Notice what he says in verse 10. When Timothy comes... Very clear in this passage that Paul has recruited Timothy and asked him to come to Corinth. He's sending Timothy on ahead. And if you were ever to imagine who Paul might recruit as his partner for ministry, Timothy would not be it. Talk about your unexpected first round draft picks. Timothy would have met none of the criteria you would expect to have in a guy who would co-labor along with Paul. When we read through the scriptures, we get all kinds of information about Timothy. Of course, we know that he was inexperienced and young. We know that he was frail physically, that Paul would say, drink wine for your stomach. But above all this, he was rather timid, shy fellow. In fact, notice how Paul describes Timothy in this passage. Notice what he says in verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. In other words, don't scare the poor guy. 
Literally, in the Greek, don't frighten him. Paul knew the Corinthians, didn't he? They would eat a pastor alive. Here's Timothy, a young, frail guy. But you know what Paul does? He sends him anyway. Can you imagine what the Corinthians would have said when they saw Timothy? Why did you send this boy to us? What possible good can he do? Paul would have stepped on the city and said, you don't get ministry at all, do you? I need his help. And for that matter, so do you. Now, some of you are here at Redeemer today, and maybe you've been here for a number of years, and you wonder, what good can I do? What, what, what real need can I fulfill? They don't need me here. The elders and deacons, they're competent individuals. What possible purpose can I serve? You look at your pastors, you look at Dean, you think, well, they don't need me. Well, I don't have any gifts. I'm, I'm inexperienced. So is Timothy. You might think, no, you don't get it. I'm, 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 I'm frail, I'm weak, I'm, I'm physically limited. Well, so is Timothy. You might think, but you don't get it. I'm shy, I'm timid. That's not people who do ministry. Well, so is Timothy. Make no mistake about it today. Ministry is not a one-man show. It requires humble dependence on one another, and that includes all of us. Let me mention a third and final thing we see in this passage as we look at Paul's ministry and the things that mark it. And that is that his ministry was marked by opposition and persecution. Serious persecution. Now imagine if you ever wanted a sermon to have two points instead of three, this might be the time. Third point is not the one we always want, is it? Okay, so ministry is about a passion for getting the message out, and ministry is about humble dependence on others. But wait a second, ministry is about opposition and persecution? I thought if you're upsetting people, that means you've done something wrong. I thought if you have opposition, that means you're failing or you're losing or you're, or you're losing ground and you're not being effective. But Paul steps on the scene here and says, no, if you think that, you don't understand the way ministry works. Because ministry, usually, if it's done in a way that God calls us to, will engender serious persecution. In fact, Paul gives his little testimony right in this passage. Did you see it? Look down at verse 9 again in our text. Or starting in verse 8, really. Paul says this, But I will stay in Ephesus till Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Did you catch that? Notice that Paul didn't say a wide door of effective ministry has opened to me despite the fact there's many adversaries. As if the two are mutually exclusive. No, Paul makes it clear that often a wide door of effective ministry and many adversaries go together. In fact, that is the wide door of effective ministry. is the fact that you're making a rustle enough to stir up opposition. Paul says, make no mistake about it, ministry is about suffering and persecution. You know, in my world at Reformed Theological Seminary, we see a lot of students come through every year excited, zealous, passionate for ministry, ready to get out there and serve Christ. And that's a wonderful thing to see. But also see how much they give up. Often leaving lucrative careers in the business world, moving their families halfway across the country, spending money on school rather than making money, often going into debt, to go out into a ministry where you don't make hardly any money, and you endure significant persecution and opposition, and have no real respect from the culture and society around you. And it never fails at every graduation, as I look out at those students, I ask myself in my head, why in the world are they doing this? 
Why in the world am I doing this? And even as we look at a passage like this, Paul comes to Redeemer Church today in God's inspired word and gives you a calling to go and suffer. You might be wondering in your own mind, why in the world would I even bother? How could I possibly have the strength and energy to go out and endure persecution? How could I possibly submit myself humbly to others? How could I possibly engender this passion to get the message out? There's only one place that motivation comes from. The cross of Christ. You want motivation today to suffer unjustly? Look to the cross of Christ. The greatest unjust suffering the world has ever seen. You want a motivation today to submit yourself in humility and dependence on others? Look to the cross of Christ. No greater example of humility the world has ever seen. For the Lord of the world to wash his disciples' feet. You want an example of someone with a passion for getting the message out? Look to Christ. Coming to bring light to the world. You know, as we draw to a close on these three very brief observations from this passage today, let me encourage you that Paul is calling all three, all three of these things he's calling us to do in our lives, to have a passion for getting the message out, to humbly submit ourselves, and to be willing to endure persecution and opposition. But that does not come in our ministries just by simply saying, I'm going to try harder to do all those things. That comes by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look to the cross today. If you're a believer, look afresh. See all those things embodied in Christ. And if you're a non-Christian today, look, perhaps for the first time, at a Savior who gives you a reason for having a message at all to bring to the world. It's my prayer for these new officers, that this would be the things that mark their ministry. It's my prayer for Redeemer, that this would mark your church, that the city of Charlotte would look at this church and say, I see those three things, a passion for the message a humbleness, and a willingness to endure persecution. Let's go to the Lord now and ask him to do that in our midst. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word and how it does convict and how it does challenge. But Lord, we pray that you would change us even now. Lord, I pray for Redeemer Church, that you would change this body to be more and more conformed to the three things that we talked about. Lord, change me. Lord, we pray that this would not just be something that we hear and then forget about, but this would be something that you're busy doing in our midst even today. Perhaps this is what you had for us today. Perhaps this is the very thing that the Spirit wants to impress on our hearts through your word. So we commit all these things and lift them up to you in Christ's precious name. Amen. Please stand with us.